Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 236. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm kind of freewheeling it. Had a very busy couple of weeks and I don't want to do another music one immediately after a previous music podcast. But I do want to kind of talk about movies and life in general and just kind of have a, a general waffle in your direction. So there'll be a lot of movie stuff in there. I'll talk about my recent trip to Sydney, which always seems to give me a kind of reflective mood and uh, we'll go from there so I don't know what's going to happen in this podcast I'll get the contact details out of the way and we'll both find out Paleo Cinema Podcast is a fortnightly podcast of movie appreciation there's only one rule and that is the movies have to be more than 20 years old and I have to like them I'm going to be looking at the history of the films the social context in which the films were made and relate that to the way movies are now Feedback is very important, so you can leave reviews on iTunes. You can also go to feedbackpaleo, P-A-L-E-O, at gmail.com and drop an email or a voicemail by MP3. Or you can go to the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Now, please be aware that this podcast may contain adult language. So if you don't want to have to explain it to your kids, don't listen to it when the kids are around. Unless you have incredibly hip children. Okay, so how is everybody? Uh, since we last spoke, I have travelled. I've gone to Sydney, I've come back again. And it seems that every time I go to Sydney these days, I have an epiphany of some kind. And that's kind of weird, but kind of good as well. Uh, while I was travelling, I actually took the train, and I've mentioned before the train, which takes 11 hours to get from Melbourne to Sydney for reasons that have to do with the government not giving a shit about infrastructure. If it was a decent country, we'd have a bullet train that would get me there in three hours and I'd be very happy. I actually had this discussion with one of the people running the train, one of the women who uh, work in the canteen on the train, and she said, well, you can't have a bullet train from Melbourne to Sydney because that's to go over mountains and swamps and hills and things like that. And then I kind of pointed out to her that China... Japan and South Korea seem to manage it, and also Taiwan, but I didn't mention Taiwan to her. And she kind of shut up after that. I don't think she wanted a bullet train from Melbourne to Sydney because it may have threatened her job. I didn't realise it at the time, and maybe I was being a bit inconsiderate. So in retrospect and to the internet, I apologise to that lady who was very nice in every other way. Uh, The food was still bad on the train, by the way. The food was really bad. Uh, shit sandwiches, uh, meat pies. You can't do much to a meat pie, so I've pretty much lived on that. Incredibly bad coffee bags, which are like tea bags, but worse. And, um, yeah, pretty much ick food. So the reason I was up there for two days is because my mum's getting increasingly unwell. Uh, She fell and broke her hip, her shoulder, and her wrist. And the nursing home where she was at the time didn't notice for 10 days. So she's now in another nursing home and she's much, much worse. She's in constant pain. Um, she, the dementia is getting worse because of that and you know, things just aren't going well. So I took the opportunity to go up. I stayed with my sister and brother-in-law and nephew for a couple of days and did the son duties of, of taking mum to the hospital. She needed to get another x-ray and have her arm recast in plaster. So I helped Linda do that. And that was pretty much the two days I was there. Two days travelling, two days in Sydney. And while I was travelling, I was reading a book. And it happened to be the novel upon which one of my favourite movies is based, Two Weeks in Another Town, the 1962 movie starring Kirk Douglas, Edward G. Robinson, and Dahlia Lavi, amongst other people. Sid is in it as well. There are a whole bunch of different people in there. So I'm reading Two Weeks in Another Town, which is about... It's very different from the movie, and I'll talk about that a little bit, well, a bit later. So I'm reading Two Weeks in Another Town, and it's about a man who travels for two weeks from his home in Paris to Rome, where he's helping out a friend of his who is a movie director. And uh, he once was a movie star, but now he's a diplomat for NATO in Paris, and his life's kind of travelling along. He's He's in his early 40s. His life's kind of travelling along. And kind of his complacency and his past get confronted during these two weeks he spends in Rome. Uh, The movie was incredibly tailored to the star Kirk Douglas. 
and that kind of skewed the narrative in a whole bunch of different ways, playing to Douglas's strengths dramatically. But the some of the people who were kind of the villains of the piece in the movie, particularly Carlotta, the ex-wife of the Jack Andrus character that Kirk Douglas played in the movie, is a very different character in the book and a much more complex and interesting one, for that matter, in the book. And she's very important to the epiphany that the protagonist has at the end of the book. So I'm reading that about a man travelling far from home by himself to confront some ugly things. And it kind of paralleled my life in a really strange way. Not that I got to do any amount of the fun things that Jack Andrews got to do in the novel, but it kind of made me reflective. Now, I've written on Facebook about seeing my mother and I took a photo of me holding her hand and I wrote some words about it which I'm a bit proud of because they conveyed exactly how I was feeling at the time and I had a couple of friends who some of whom are professional writers who really did appreciate how well I wrote those things and I wrote them from the gut and the heart at the same time I was sitting on the balcony of my sister and brother-in-law's apartment in Barubra. There was a soft rain falling, but it wasn't coming out of the balcony. I had the laptop propped onto a bench and I was sitting on a chair in front of the bench. And it was nighttime and you could see the skyline of Sydney. And there was a festival of, an audiovisual kind of festival on in Sydney called Vivid. And I was sitting there writing in the rain kind of, which is you know, terribly melodramatic. And laser beams were shooting through the sky of Sydney around me. And it really did kind of have a weird feeling about it. It was late at night and I really couldn't get to sleep until I got the words out. And that's not something that happens to me very often. But when it does, it tends to bring out the best in my writing, which is um, kind of interesting. It's like I can't write until... My head fills up with emotion. So I'm going to read it to you. Um, it's not the usual kind of thing I do on the podcast, but occasionally I indulge myself with this. And because I've spent the week traveling and really only getting my feet again in the last day or so, I really haven't had time to watch some movies and to get things ready for a podcast. So full confession, I apologize for that. I put a really simple picture of me holding mum's hand and her hand is not in good shape it's thin skeletal and and you can tell that she doesn't have very long so i posted that and it went viral i posted it on uh one facebook group of very simpatico people and i posted it on my own facebook and the response i got was overwhelming so on the 29th of may i kind of sat down with the laptop in the rain. And this is what I wrote. The picture I posted of me holding my mother's hand has gone a bit viral in my friend list and another online community I trust where I posted it. There's a backstory there. Mum's down to 38 kilos. And after I left, they gave her more pain meds and put her on a drip to hydrate her because Linda called them. Mum was in agony when I got there from the after-effects of a broken hip and arm which her previous nursing home didn't notice for 10 days. Because of her progressive Alzheimer's, she isn't able to articulate her discomfort well and kept repeating, I can't and I can't do that to try to explain it to us. There were also gasps of pain and she faded in and out of consciousness during the time I sat there. She is shockingly diminished since the last time I saw her. Smaller, frailer, and with less of herself in her eyes. Since last November, the change is horrific. I didn't know what to do. I gave her tissues so she could wipe her mouth and nose, and I held her hand as the picture shows. I did something silly and sentimental, and it helped a bit. I should have asked the nurses for more pain medication, but I didn't know the protocols or even how that worked. So I got out my phone, and I found songs by Nat King Cole that she'd sung to me as lullabies when I was very small. I put the phone beside her on the chair and played them for her. She reacted. She dozed in little, small, minute-long increments before the pain jerked her awake again. I watched her carefully for the rise and fall of her breathing, 
Part of me wanted the breathing to stop, but the other part was relieved that it continued. She's dying, but in a cruelly slow way. Sitting there, I reminded myself that however I felt, it was only a tiny quantum of her pain. I'm profoundly glad that I took the train up here to visit her. My sister Linda had borne the burden of her care for so many years that any small thing I could do was, if nothing else, an acknowledgement of Linda's bravery. I wanted a photo of my mother, Mari Evelyn Shuttleworth, but it would have been cruel to take one of her open mouth without the dentures and the bewildered, agonised expression on her face. So it took a photo of me holding her hand, and to my immense surprise, it was a beautiful thing. An image of humanity and human contact and love that I didn't plan. The light from the window fell across her wrist, and her arm showed the ravages of time and illness in a way that wasn't prurient. I may never take a photo that beautiful again. I couldn't sleep until I put this into the words. I'm on the balcony of Linda and Gavin's apartment, looking across the rainy night at the lights of Sydney skyline. Laser beams from the Vivid Festival are sporadically throwing geometrically perfect shafts of collimated light into the sky, made brighter by the rain. Beauty comes in a lot of different forms, in the celebration of art and in the desperate need for a son to record a moment with his mother. After I left the nursing home, I sat on the bench in the footpath outside. I called Sally and told her about Mum as sinuous little skinks basked in the morning sunlight on the sandy brick wall in front of me. Skinks and hands and the songs of Nat King Cole. Like wavy gravy said at Woodstock, there's always a little bit of heaven in a disaster area. Yes, yeah, so I wrote that and um, it kind of got it out of me. And it taught me something, which is really strange. The, the whole day and the whole two days in another town taught me some interesting things. Uh, I'm looking for the beauty in things at the moment. Where I might have been cynical and sardonic and depressed and, and kind of fucked up, what I'm doing now is kind of trying to focus on things that redeem the moment. And it's kind of a cool way to see things. I don't think it's going to be a uniform thing in my life. I don't think I'm going to go Pollyanna and only see the good things because you can't have beauty in isolation. There's got to be something to contrast against it. Otherwise, it's just business as usual. But I've been doing a lot of photography lately. Uh, I've got this really nice Google Pixel 2 XL camera, which does, uh, well, phone actually. I see. I said camera because that's what I mostly use it as. But it's a phone. And it does some interesting things. There's some software you can get to it where you can take video at 240 frames per second, which gives you a beautiful slow motion effect. And the quality of the camera is incredibly high. You can also do things like uh, shoot video in 4K. And uh, the photographs you can take, there are endless bits of software you can get for free on the phone that'll let you tweak images in kind of interesting ways and one of the other things that I kind of thought of because I had a ton of time to think on the way to and from Sydney is that I've got the capacity to make movies I don't mean I can make Citizen Kane or even The Other Side of the Wind by the way Awesome Wells The Other Side of the Wind uh, is going to get a theatrical release finally Netflix have agreed to do it so that's good news but in my hand, wherever I walk, I've got something that'll let me make small documentaries. And I've been doing it on YouTube a little bit. And it kind of came to me that that's something I really wanted to do. It's something I'm as passionate about as I am about podcasting. And I remember a couple of years ago, somebody said to me, have you ever thought of making movies? And I kind of dismissed it out of hand at the time. Because, no, no, I just kind of talk on the radio and I do podcasts and things like that. But there's a bit more I can do now. And I found out that one of the things I really like doing is video editing. So I'm going to be doing some more of that. I'm not going to abandon the podcast in spite of the last two episodes of this one where I haven't been organized. It's the last thing I want to do is to abandon podcasting at all. But I want to do more things with video because... There are, there are so many great things you can do. Uh, things like I can tighten timelines. If something's moving slowly, I can fast forward it 
and it still comes out looking beautiful on uh, a video editing bit of software. I can slow things down so that the jerkiness of me walking with the camera in my hand gets taken away and turns into a slow rolling gait rather than jerky camera work. There's so much cool stuff there and you know it's, it's a direction I want to go in and it suddenly occurred to me that this is what Hollywood and Paris and Chinachita in Italy and Nollywood and Bollywood and everywhere where they make films, this is the same bug that the people who make those films have been bitten by. And that's kind of cool. Uh, I may never come to anything and I may kind of find a new passion sometime down the line because I'm a fickle lover when it comes to enthusiasms. But... I really want to kind of have a go at things. I really want to see how the YouTube channel can go because I'm, I'm talking about movies some of the time. Sometimes I'm talking about other things. But making YouTube videos, by the way, is the coolest thing ever. If you can do it at all and you can overcome your fear and the possibility that people are going to think you're stupid for doing it, it's a lot of fun. And one of the things that keeps happening in my life, and I don't know whether it happens in yours, but there's a chance that it does, is that... There's a stage of your life you get to where the technology catches up with your passions. For a long time, I did fanzines, all of which are totally unreadable now, to me at least. And then podcasting came along, and podcasting was the thing I was waiting for, to be able to talk about movies and talk about other things, including my own life, as I have in this podcast. But the technology hadn't caught up. Years and years and years ago, when pterodactyls ruled the sky, I had this idea that what I wanted to do was record a whole bunch of stuff on cassettes and kind of distribute them out to people I knew almost in the same way that fanzines were distributed. Everyone had a cassette player in those days. This would have been like early 90s maybe. And then I thought I'd do it with um, burnable CDs, but I never got around to it and the distribution seemed to be overwhelming. You have to mail them out to people or hand them out to people. You have to get them to accept them as well. But podcasting came along and the technology finally caught up with the things I wanted to do. And so I've podcasted for the last 10 years and I've loved it. I've made friends with it. I've kind of got passionate about it. I've talked about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies and I've shared them with people. There are people out there who see, who've seen movies now and love movies now that they wouldn't be aware of had I not shared them with them. And that's kind of cool. There's no use knowing stuff unless you share it with other people and share your knowledge and your passion. And I kind of got that feeling with doing video on really good phone cameras. You can do it incredibly well. I've got a gimbal now, so I can smooth out the jerkiness of walking around with a phone held out in front of me. Uh, there are three-dimensional gimbals now that work kind of like steady cams. They're only about 100 120 bucks, so I picked up one of those, and it does a lovely job of things, and they're constantly updating the software on it so that it can link into the phone and you can zoom the phone by using the handle of the gimbal. You can rotate it left and right, up and down. You can t uh, twist it so it goes towards the sky or goes toward the ground so they're you know, three-dimensionally you can do anything you like with these things so I've got that on my phone uh, a gimbal I can do 240 frame per second slow motion with it I can speed things up I can do time lapse as well so that everything seems to be moving really fast like I'm Rod Taylor in the time machine so there are all these different tools I can use for storytelling and that's kind of cool I wouldn't necessarily do a fictional film with it but there's stuff I can convey and I, some of the things I convey in podcasts I can also convey visually using that those tools and using editing software and even found stills from the internet to tell the story about a certain movie or about a certain bunch of films or a certain genre of films for instance I just finished doing a YouTube video about the 10 worst movie titles of all time. And I really enjoyed that. I put it together in um, a real 
hurry. I wrote the script, recorded the script, and then stitched together in the manner of Baron Frankenstein the visuals for it and put it out on uh, YouTube. So, yeah, it's um, interesting times for me. I remember back about a year ago when I was going to not be working anymore and I had to redefine who I was, which is always a pain in the ass and it's not something anybody wants to do because birth pangs always hurt. Um, And now I'm kind of finding that what I want to do is create content for the internet that keeps me interested in the world and engaged with the world because one of the reasons my mother got the diseases she had was that her world diminished enormously she um, didn't go out and do things she didn't keep her mind active she didn't keep her body active and she didn't learn new things and so those diseases were waiting for her and pounced on those vulnerabilities there's not a genetic component to her alzheimer's it's purely something that happens when you don't engage with the world enough and you kind of diminish because of that there is a genetic component to some people's dementia but in general we're finding out more and more that it's about activity you know physical and mental so i don't want to go down that path if i can possibly avoid it so having this sudden passion for making youtube videos and in a sense youtube videos are one of two things they're either autobi- well, th- two or three things. Autobiography, they're paid promotions for products, or they're documentary. And the documentary one's the one that interests me most of all, and, and talking about movies and demonstrating visually what they are. And there's an interesting, very kind of interesting tightrope you've got to walk on YouTube when you talk about creative works by other people because there are some crazily adept algorithms out there. And if you use video from something, it'll pick it up really quickly. And you don't have the opportunity of ever monetizing that particular video because you've used 10 seconds of a feature film in it. You can use stills and patch them together. But unless you want to kind of wait out the process that of review that YouTube has, you're not going to beat the big guys in a lot of cases i've beaten them once or twice where where basically bottom feeders claim to have copyright to a certain thing but it turns out they didn't and i knew they didn't so i argued the point and they kind of backed off on me so you've got to constantly fight those kind of battles but nonetheless it's um it's a passion that i have now and i kind of enjoy that it's really good fun to go out there and make a movie i did a short film about going to the zoo not entirely happy with the editing because i'm on this crazy learning curve like cliff robinson in um in charlie the adaptation of flowers for algernon the stuff i did days ago looks stupid to me now and it's like i'm gaining skills so fast as far as video editing is concerned that the older stuff and by the older stuff i mean weeks ago looks really primitive and i go well, no i wouldn't shouldn't have done that i should have tightened that bit up i should have maybe sped up the video on that piece i should have left out that bit of narration that car footage of the car going through the countryside was way too long i should have cut that one back so you go through this self-analysis process as well and then and because it's an alternative to work my brain's found something like that uh to keep the activity that you need to stay healthy the other side of it of course is going to the gym now i found out one interesting thing about going to the gym and you might not know this it's possible you don't unless you've got headphones on the music is going to not motivate you at all by going to the gym because they play really fucked up things on the music at gyms things like drake and chris brown and things of which i have no interest at all so unless i've got my headphones on the music at my gymnasium acts like kryptonite. It really is a weird thing. And I go, yeah, I'll do half a workout this time because that music's totally fucked. My old Bluetooth headphones died while I was at the gym and my energy levels just fell off a cliff. So music's so important to exercise. And so what I do is this, ABC Jazz. ABC has a streaming-only jazz channel. So I'll groove to some modern jazz or some old jazz, depending on what they're playing. 
And for some reason, that works for me so much better than listening to music which doesn't really have anything for me. By the way, that musical chiming in the background was the delivery guy. I just got a monopod for the camera and for my phone. Uh, monopod, by the way, and getting off the subject of the gym and onto this, is like a tripod, but it only has one vertical leg and uh, three feet at the bottom. So it's a little lot more easy to carry around. So I've been kind of picking up things like that. I've got some camera gear now. I've got an incredibly long telephoto lens for my DSLR. Um, yeah, it looks like I am getting into this stuff. I'm kind of doing with audio-visual gear what I used to do with microphones, buying stuff that would be useful but I don't particularly need. Uh, there are a lot of microphones here around the man cave, but that's kind of okay. And so having a tripod and a monopod and a gimbal and an incredibly long telephoto lens, which is so embarrassingly phallic that I haven't taken it out in public yet. The only thing I can compare it to is back when I was a very small child, I used to get 20 cents for lunch. And in those days, you could buy lunch for 20 cents at a school. And so my mum would give me 20 cents for lunch and I'd go to school. But on the way to school was a shop. And so I'd go to the shop and buy a comic book which, oddly enough, was 20 cents. See, that's the way they get you. They make it the same price as your lunch. And so I'd buy a comic book, and then I'd come home hungry, and my mum would say, well, why are you hungry? And I'm like, oh, I didn't have any lunch. And why didn't you have any lunch? And then she'd open my school bag, and there'd be a Superman comic in there. And I'd get in trouble for it. Maybe that's what I should have done at the nursing home. Maybe I should have brought my mother a Superman comic. But anyway, that's what I'm doing now with AV gear and um, video gear and things like that. I'm Rather than spending my money on anything else, I would rather have a new gadget for my mobile phone than have a meal these days. And that's a consistent thing through my life. I kind of gave up the essentials to buy things that entertain me. But it's a character flaw, but it's not a bad character flaw. It's not like I'm combing my hair over and running for the United States president. But um, so to wind up this bit of the show, yeah, times are changing for me, and it's kind of good. I've got some plans for the podcast, which I'm really going to have to get my shit into gear about. Um, we're going to Sydney again later this month because my sister and my brother-in-law and my wonderful nephew, Billy, are going to Hawaii because I think Gab wants to cook in a volcano or something. But anyway, they're going on a holiday in Hawaii. And so we are house-sitting for them for a week. So I get to go back to the hometown. I'll be podcasting from Sydney too, which is going to be kind of fun. But, um, yeah, so we're doing that. And after that is when I'm going to have to really do a few things that I want to do with the podcast. In particular, get people guesting on the, on the podcast i've got people i've promised guest spots on the podcast for a long time and i haven't coughed up yet and i'm really going to have to do that but anyway uh because i haven't done this for a while and because somebody asked me nicely i'm going to do a promotion now for another podcast and when i get back i am going to talk about a couple of films i've seen on the trip to sydney and on the trip back do you like great music do you like in-depth podcasts? Do you like the idea of putting great music under the microscope? If you answered yes, no, or fish to any of these questions, Love That Album is the show for you. Every month, Morris and a fellow music fanatic discuss a particular album in detail. They'll cover the performer, the history behind the recording, the musicianship, common thematic elements between the songs, and how many drugs were consumed during its creation. Well, maybe not so much of the last bit. So if you want to hear a podcast bringing perspective to great rock, jazz, folk, punk, and sea shanty music, then subscribe to Love That Album Podcast at Apple Podcasts or download directly from lovethatalbum.blogspot.com. Yeah, Morris asked me to play that one for you. Uh, he hired a voiceover guy 
to do like a deep inner world kind of voice for his podcast promo. And that's what he got back. I hope he got his money's worth. And because Morris has inflicted that on us all, I'm going to play a song you probably won't like. And then I'm going to talk about a couple of movies that I watched while I was travelling between Sydney and Melbourne and Melbourne and Sydney. Trees, the pearly shells and the tropical breeze. There's a hillbilly gal from Tennessee, my hillbilly hula gal. She had enough of the hills and me, so she's taking hula lessons in Waikiki. I guess she's right where she wants to be, my hillbilly hula gal. She's dancing with wahinis in the islands now. She's trying to do the hula, but she don't know how. She got the pineolas in her own corral. She feed them grits and gravy at the old luau. The bluegrass hills and the mountain dew. Wait till she leaves Honolulu. She better come home like she's supposed to do. My hillbilly hula gal. big enjoy. She can't churn butter when she's dipping that poi, my hillbilly hula gal. Now she never used to give a hoot for coconuts or taro root. She's a country girl living in the islands now. She's trying to get the hula girl to show her how. When she gets through with this fantasy, she come on back to Tennessee. Back with me where she's supposed to be, my hillbilly hula gal. My hillbilly I think that's what they call a mashup. Anyway, um, yeah, so I took my tablet computer with me when I went to Sydney because I knew I would be as bored as fuck on the train trip. And so I decided to watch a couple of movies. One was a TV movie from 1974 and the other one was a big budget feature film from 1963. The former I enjoyed more than the latter, so I'm going to talk about it first. It's a movie called Smile, Jenny, You're Dead, and it stars David Jansen, Jodie Foster, Andrea Makovici, and Zalman King, and it is one of the two pilots that uh, they did for the Harry O TV series with David Jansen. So I'm going to play a little bit of audio from that and then talk to you about why I think it's worth checking out if you can find a copy of it. Hi! Liberty? Well, what are you doing up there? I slept here last night. Are you lost? No, I know where I am. You do, run away? From who? Liberty what? Just plain Liberty. Well, where do you live? I don't remember. Well, what do you mean you don't remember? I've got amnesia. What's the matter with your back? You want to know what's the matter with my back? It hurts, because there's a bullet in it. That's why I live at the beach on a policeman's disability pension. And that's why I moonlight the rest of my income as a private detective. I have a boat. As soon as I get it put back together, I'm going out in the ocean when they don't have any telephones. Telephones bug me. Days happen. Today I get up, my back hurts, I run my mile. I don't know anybody named Jennifer. I live in my world. Jennifer lives with her colonel. If you said Harry Oda, she'd say who? So that was Jodie Foster and David Jensen in at the beginning of Smile, Jenny, You're Dead. The Harry O TV series I liked a lot when it was on. Uh, 
In it, David Jensen plays uh, Harry Orwell, a retired cop who is on a disability pension because he has a bullet in his back. And he runs as a private eye. Now, for the first half of the first season, he was in San Diego and he had a beach house on Coronado Island. But they retooled the series during the second half of the first season and kind of moved the location to Los Angeles. Obviously, it was cheaper to film in Los Angeles than it was in San Diego. And the the series went on for two seasons until David Jensen kind of got fed up with it. It was rating okay, but he'd been doing TV series since the late 1950s. He did Richard Diamond, Private Eye. Then he was immensely popular for a number of years in The Fugitive. And Harry O was his third TV series. So he decided to quit doing TV series until, unfortunately, he died at the crazily early age of 48 of a heart attack. He was a drinker and a smoker and dropped dead of a heart attack at the age of 48, which is a shame because he would he's the sort of guy who had he lived... Let's see, he died in 1980. So if he had lived another, say, 15 years, which was not unreasonable, he's the sort of guy Tarantino would have picked up to be in a Tarantino movie. And he may have had a career resurgence, much in the same way that people like David Carradine and Robert Forster did. Harry O was the usual kind of private eye with a difference. Not quite like Jim Rockford. He didn't have the kind of supporting cast of crazy characters that the Rockford Files had. But as the second pilot tells us, he's a romantic kind of guy. He's kind of rough but nice. And he, unlike a lot of protagonists, was unashamedly working class. He was poor. He was broke most of the time. Uh, he was, he's had a car in Old Austin Healy, which was constantly breaking down and was most of, for most of the time not functioning. He was um, living from kind of paycheck to paycheck, charged $100 a day plus expenses. And, uh, you know, it, it was one of those series that played on the charisma of the leading actor. And David Jensen had that. Really going to have to try to find a box set of Harry O and binge the fuck out of it. See, that's the problem with things like Netflix. You wouldn't get a series like Harry O turning up on Netflix. But in Smile, Jenny, You're Dead, there are two parallel plots playing out. One involves Liberty, the runaway played by Jodie Foster, who Harry helps out because her mother is in jail for theft and he lets Liberty stay in his beach house until they can arrange for her mother to get bail and to get out of jail, pay the fine, and they can restart their lives. So that's one parallel plot line. The other one involves a cop played by Howard De Silva, and I like Howard De Silva as an actor, whose daughter... Uh, is being stalked by somebody. Uh, as the as the plot goes on, we see who the person who's stalking her is right from the start. It's right before the titles in this telly movie. But um, her estranged husband is killed, and um, other people in her life are killed because of this stalker. And she doesn't realise at first that she's being stalked. She's a fashion model. Andrea Markovici was a fashion model at one stage. And the stalker gets keys to her house by stealing them out of her purse and really kind of fucks up her life. Now, the stalker is a mad photographer played by an actor called Zalman King, who was in, amongst other things, Blue Sunshine. And he plays the character in an extremely creepy way. He had curly hair. He wears suits with slightly enlarged bow ties, constantly carries a camera around, has a blank, creepy stare. And from our modern point of view, we pick it immediately that she's got a stalker. But these were simpler times. There were no surveillance cameras to catch him doing anything. Um, locks on doors were just basically locks on doors. You can do a YouTube um, tutorial now on how to get past those. And it wasn't something that it had at, in 1974 become part of public awareness to the extent that it has these days. Now, Jenny's in a relationship with a much older man played by uh, a character actor called John Anderson who has a, quite a dark past of his own. 
And she's very much kind of beautiful damsel in distress kind of character that we saw in episodic television at the time. These days, there'd be a little more spine to it. But Jenny is who she is for the purposes of 1970s American television. And Andrea Markovic is pretty good in it. It was one of her earlier acting roles, so she didn't quite have a skill set in place for it. And there are a couple of kind of slightly bad line readings in there. But it kind of works. There's a nice rapport between her and David Jansen and the start of a kind of chemistry between them which doesn't go anywhere for very good reasons. But there's enough there to kind of show that Harry has a kind of heart of gold underneath the gruff exterior. There are a few other interesting actors in there. We have Clue Gulliger playing Detective Milt Bosworth. He's one of the cops in there, and he plays off uh, Harry quite nicely. And the direction by Jerry Thorpe is pretty good for a television movie too. There's a lot of shooting through th- objects to show the characters framed in those objects in the same way that someone will be framed by a photograph, which kind of plays into the stalking and the photography that uh, Roy, the character played by Zelman King, does. And even though the kind of comeuppance of the bad guy is a little bit understated, I kind of like this. It was um, a t- kind of hark back to me to a previous time in my life when I was watching TV shows like Harry O., And one of the things that I got from this, and it was actually written by a guy called Howard Rodman, who had a long career in episodic television. He did things like Route 66. He wrote a couple of movie screenplays too, things you might know like Madigan and Coogan's Bluff and Charlie Varick. He did the screenplay for that as well. So he was a pretty good crime screenwriter. And he gives all the characters little bits of complexity, just little bits of business so that you know they're not just kind of cardboard cut-out characters. And that kind of makes it work. It was really the uh, second pilot, this particular one, that sold the um, network on the Harry O TV series. They had a good grip on who Harry was as a character and the kind of stuff they could expect from the series. And so it went well for two years. But the plot was tight. Uh, We know exactly what's happening the progression's there right up until the climax. There's a slow realisation by the protagonists of exactly what's going on and how. And there's an incredibly creepy villain. So you, that's pretty much what you could ask for episodic television in the 1970s. And this one really delivers that. I like the way the plot goes. I like the characters in it. And it reminds me of how much I enjoyed the work of David Jansen as an actor. Probably the thing of his that I like the best, and I really should do it for a podcast in the future, is a 1961 movie called Ring of Fire, which has a genuine forest fire in it and has some incredibly effective shots of a forest fire. Uh, and it's also got Frank Gorshin in it. Uh, I really have to revisit that one because I, as I remember it, it was a really effective little thriller set in the forests of Oregon. So Ring of Fire, I'm going to have to definitely put that on the list, I think. But just to wrap up for Smile, Jenny, you're dead. I'm going to have to try to find a box set of Harry O, I think, and binge me a little David Jansen just for the fun of it at some stage. So uh, that brings us to the next movie, and this one is a kind of pseudo-Hitchcock movie from 1963. <laughs> What was your first reaction when you received the news of your Nobel Prize? Uh, no reaction at all. I was dead drunk at the time. of the Swedish Foreign Ministry, assigned to you for your stay here in Stockholm. Hello. Hello. Uh, I have a car waiting outside. Will you follow me, please? Excuse me. Things are looking up. And I didn't want to come to Stockholm. 
This is not on the Nobel schedule, Mr. Craig. I think you should be prepared to make unscheduled flights, Miss Anderson. Yours is not the only unscheduled flight, Mr. Craig. Pride makes many unscheduled flights into the maze of conflict and intrigue that lurks behind the private lives of each of the winners. The winner for literature. Which one has the body in it? A genius with a curious affinity for trouble. The most exciting star role of Paul Newman's meteoric career. Will there be anything else tonight, sir? I hope so. And who's that breathtaking blonde? It couldn't be anyone else than seductive new star, Elka Sommer. I've been beside myself all night. I wish I could be beside yourself all night. For every blonde, there must be a brunette. How old are you? Why? I don't know. I mean, most of the girls in this place are... You look as though you ought to be in bed. I accept. Diane Baker is the brunette whose beauty is at bewildering variance with her sinister behavior. The winner for physics, Edward G. Robinson, is the refugee scientist caught in the struggle between East and West. And then we all disappear behind the Iron Curtain on this, on this rowboat, and nobody will ever know the truth. The winner for chemistry, the French husband and wife research team whose marriage is just about finished. Oh, hello, Claude. Now, may I have my dressing gown back? And my wife, perhaps. I have nothing on underneath. He's not kidding. He just came from a nudist convention. One of the most controversial and widely discussed scenes in movie history. I'm being followed by two men who are trying to kill me. No. Yes, someone is trying to kill you, Mr. Craig. There's just time for another kiss. And another martini. And then you'd better do something about it. And do something he does. In a fury of excitement, suspense, and terror, heightened by never-ending villainies in which the scientists themselves are the prize. I first saw the prize in the 1960s, it might have been at a drive-in. And from that very early viewing of it, there are two scenes that I remember from the movie. The first one was the one at the nudist convention. There's a scene where Paul Newman interrupts a nudist convention because two killers are chasing him and he wants somebody to call the cops, which is a kind of um, parallel to something you might have seen in North by Northwest. The other scene that... I remember, was the scene where Edward G. Robinson gets defibrillated by a doctor played by Sergio Fantoni using the electrical wires from a desk lamp. Now, I remember at the time a couple of things. One, I thought it was extremely cool for somebody to restart someone's heart using electricity from a wall socket at a desk lamp. The other thing I remember is that I was told by grown-ups not to ever try that. And to be honest, I haven't really done that, so the the warning went well for me. The movie is kind of Hitchcock-lite. It stars Paul Newman, Elka Sommer, Elwood G. Robinson, Diane Baker, Micheline Presley, Sergio Fantoni, Kevin McCarthy turns up in there as well, Uh, Leo G. Carroll. It's set around the Nobel Prize, hence the name of the movie. And as... Joe Dante has said in the Trailers from Hell YouTube video about this movie. It was filmed in Stockholm, Sweden, with the second unit and body doubles, and none of the actors ever left California to film a movie set in Stockholm, which was the way they did it then. They were cheap bastards, and having the actors on location wasn't seen to be important. We've come full circle with that to a certain extent, because with green screen technologies now, you can put your actors anywhere in the world that you like. And so having that, keeping the actors in Hollywood, but portraying them as being all around the world is something we're able to do now in a technological way. And so having people on location isn't quite as important. It's done a lot on episodic television at the moment. So in this one, Drawing a Long Bow, Paul Newman plays Andrew Craig, who is nominated, who is awarded the Nobel Prize for Literature for a couple of novels he's written. Uh, None of his novels have ever made money, and he is unashamedly 
telling this to the world press as he's being interviewed at the time. Uh, he also tells them that the way he's been making money and keeping body and soul together is to write cheap detective novels under a pseudonym. And th- that ability to come up with outrageous plots for cheap detective novels is what enables him to detect a genuine plot in and around the Nobel Prize. The Nobel Prize for Physics is being awarded to Dr. Max Stratman, played by Edward G. Robinson, who is kidnapped and replaced with a double. Problem is the double doesn't remember that Andrew Craig and Dr. Stratman met the day before, and so the Paul Newman character's suspicions are raised. So you've got the good girl and the bad girl. You've got Elka Summer playing Inga Anderson, which has got to be one of the most cliched Swedish names in the world, uh, who is a local cultural attaché who is escorting Andrew Craig around. He's a, a bit of an alcoholic and a womanizer, as, of course, famous writers were in the world of lazy 1960s movie writing. By the way, it was based on a novel by Irving Wallace called The Prize. Irving Wallace had a great skill for putting the and then a noun in his um, books. He had The Prize. He had another one called The Man, which is about the first black president, which was made into a television movie. I think it starred James Earl Jones. Wrote a whole bunch of uh, novels, The Prize, The Man, The Plot, The Seven Minutes, which was made into a Russ Meyer movie. The Word, The Fan Club, The Pigeon Project, The Second Lady, The Seventh Secret, The Celestial Bed. He also wrote non-fiction, kind of popularised histories. I've got a couple of them. There's one called um, The Nympho and Other Maniacs, The Lives, Loves and Sexual Adventures of Some Scandalous and Liberated Ladies. He also did The People's Almanac, which was kind of like an early Wikipedia on paper, uh, which I've got a copy here somewhere in the man cave. Uh, There's also, he wrote things called The Book of Lists uh, and Square Pegs, Some Americans Who Dare to Be Different and the Fabulous Originals, Lives of Extraordinary People Who Inspired Memorable Characters in Fiction. So he he kind of was almost a one-man band when it came to writing all sorts of things, not only pot-boiler novels, but also kind of popularised non-fiction. But the prize is kind of mildly entertaining in a way, but there are so many beats that are stolen from North by Northwest that it really is a pain to watch at times. The reason that there are beats stolen from North by Northwest is that Ernest Lehman, who wrote North by Northwest for Alfred Hitchcock, I think about three or four years before the prize, also wrote the screenplay for the prize. So the shame here is that Ernest Lehman cannibalised his own work for this particular movie, and that's a bit of a shame, because even though the plot is does have parallels with North by Northwest, there are things and ways that this movie could have been done that would have taken it along a different path and given it just enough originality to make it a somewhat more memorable movie. It's shot beautifully, of course, because all of the big-budget movies at the time were. And I think even though Paul Newman is miscast and a little bit kind of smug playing Andrew Craig, he's kind of likeable in there as well, particularly when his character gets out of his depth. Elka Summer in a very early English-speaking role is beautiful and charming. Diane Baker's playing against type, playing the bad girl in the movie. And there are some creepy-looking character actors who are trying to emulate the kind of saturnine evilness that Martin Landau brought to his supporting character in North by Northwest and who don't really succeed in that. I think the things that differentiate the prize from North by Northwest, apart from the fact that Lehman cannibalised his own work to make it, is... The director, Mark Robson, who did some good things with Val and Luton and made some reasonable movies at various times, doesn't really ramp up the suspense in the same, with the same skill that Alfred Hitchcock does. There's not that real sense of menace. There's a lot of reprojection work in the stunt scenes that really make them ineffective. And we don't really get the sense that there is any genuine threat to the Andrew Craig character, which is a bit of a shame. 
But revisiting the movie for me was kind of fun. Uh, I was on a long train trip. The movie runs two hours. And it took me somewhere else than where I was, which was kind of nice. And any movie that has Elka Summer in it is, at minimum, kind of nice to watch because she did have a very sensuous persona. She was always portraying intelligent women who were sexy and who, for the most part, didn't take advantage of that. There were guys who wanted to take advantage of the fact that they were sexy in her career, but she always played somebody who was aware that she was sexually attractive and yet didn't play up to it or play dumb. And that was kind of one of the ways that she differentiated herself from so many other starlets at the time. And because the the movie, by the way, used second unit to do all of the stuff in uh, Stockholm, in and around Stockholm, we don't really get those kind of location-based set pieces in the same way that Hitchcock did them in North by Northwest. Even though you know that Cary Grant and even Marie Saint were really on the top of Mount Rushmore, there was a sense that they were and there was a kind of style to it, things that Hitchcock brought that Mark Robinson really wasn't able to. And even on this movie, there are some kind of slightly amusing bits of business in it. We really don't get this humour in the same way you get humour in Hitchcock because Hitchcock had a kind of unashamedly musical, working-class English sense of humour. And that came out in various scenes, particularly when he had a foil like Cary Grant as his protagonist who could do comedy as well as he could do kind of charming and do drama. But you can always use this movie as a kind of litmus test for why you shouldn't really follow a movie that is popular and try to emulate it. It's got all the flaws of doing that and none of the virtues. But having said that, it was entertaining while I was watching it. It really, um, I, I knew where it was going. I knew how it was going to get there for the most part. And I knew that they were kind of copying North by Northwest. But it still kept me engaged on the trip home. I watched it on the second half of the long journey. And I think this is one of the movies that would have benefited from a ghostwriter to just sharpen up and tighten up that dialogue just a little bit. Somebody a, a bit amusing and a little bit urbane because some of the kind of one-liners and the little bits of a side and the kind of pseudo-sexy talk from Paul Newman looks like it, it might have been useful to have somebody else run their eyes and their typewriter over it to just give it that little extra punch but I suppose it'll always be fond of the movie for the simple reason that it's a movie from the 60s I remember two scenes from and the fact that it saw me through a quite a boring time on a train but anyway, that's about it this time around. Thank you very much for putting up with the first half of this podcast where I was rambling and ranting and talking about my family and, and my life. But it looks like we came good in the second half. So again, thank you very, very much to all of the Patreon supporters who are wonderful and I hope they all get laid and are happy and contented and may their lives be full of lottery wins and free chocolate particularly to the newest supporter, my good friend David Cummer, who is our patriarch of closed captioning. And as usual, I'm going to leave you with the credits in the style of movie credits to honour and thank all of the Patreon subscribers to the podcast. Look after yourselves. I'll be back soon with the Martian Driving Podcast, which I will probably record, some of at least, this weekend at Continuum, the local science fiction convention. There are a few people I want to have a chat with. And I may well drag out a microphone to do that. And I'll kind of put together a, a kind of mosaic of the science fiction convention and what people have liked in movies lately and what they haven't liked in movies. We'll do a bit of that kind of thing. But anyway, take care of yourselves. Watch good movies, watch bad movies. Kiss the people you love, but don't use your tongue if you're related to them by blood. And I'll be back very soon with another podcast. So here are the credits. And look after yourselves. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema Podcast and Martian Driving Podcast done in the style of film credits. I'd like to thank Tom the Focus Puller, 
Sarah the special effects technician, Ian the caterer, Grant the technicolor consultant, Claire the script doctor, Gary the prop master, Morris our musical director, Jan our dialect coach, Armin our key grip, Matt the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine our scientific advisor, Julia the casting director, Chris the camera operator, Christopher the gaffer, Miss Jane the wardrobe mistress, Tansy our foley artist, Alyssa our location scout, Mark the second unit director, Paul the special makeup effects director, Tammy the donut wrangler, Tim our New York unit director, Steve our spiritual advisor, Steve Sullivan our script doctor, Dylan the goat wrangler, Eric the set security lead, Richard H the set photographer, Mark D the extra, David L the extra, and Richard C our transport co-captain, plus Andrew our necessary film critic. We have Kerry H our accountant and Kerry L our other spiritual advisor. Thank you so much to all the patrons for dipping into their pockets and helping out with the podcast. This has been a Paleo Cinema Martian Drive-In production. The end. <laughs>